So, retrospectors, what historical events are we ticking off on this week's run of Today in History? Well, Monday is the anniversary of the day Roger first publishes famous thesaurus. Then on Tuesday, we say happy birthday, Mr. Potato Head. On Wednesday, the extraordinary stories of the child soldiers who fought in the American Civil War. On Thursday, how King James changed the word of God. And on Friday, what did spam emails look like in 1978? We discuss this and more on Today in History with the retrospectors. Ten minutes every weekday, wherever you get your podcasts. Hello Man fans, Ollie Man here with The Modern Man. Thank you to everyone who has been saluting our return on social media. That was lovely to see. Thank you as well to those of you who got in touch with suggestions of future guests for the series. We will be following up on some of them, so thanks. And hello to those of you who saw our Facebook Live video on Valentine's Day. Uh, Probably most of you had other things to do on Valentine's Day, but we did do it. You can still watch it uh, on my Facebook page, facebook.com slash ollieman. It was me and Alex in a bed. It wasn't a bed. It was actually two bed sheets vertically attached to the wall, so it looked like we were in bed, which took producer Matt about three hours to construct. (laughs) His speciality is very much audio. Uh, Anyway, you know, it was Valentine's Day, so we talked about sex and romance and stuff. It was a bit of clickbait to try and spread the word out there that the modern man is back. Um, And I couldn't help noticing this comment on the video from listener Vince Brown. Hi, Vince. Uh, He said, uh, hey, Ollie, hope you all keep up the good work in this series and that you give Ollie Peart a tad more respect. Towards the end of the last series, you were dissing him a little, and it seemed like you wanted the zeitgeist section over with quickly. (laughs) Well, Vince, you have expertly dissected the entire comic construct of our double act there. Uh, It has, indeed, kind of evolved, I guess, our repartee, to the point whereby I am automatically a little sceptical of anything that Mr. Peart brings to the table. I will try and be kinder from now on, Vince. I will try. I do love Ollie Peart, really. It's just that, remember, you hear the edit. In real life, I have to sit through half an hour of that. Right, this week's show is about London Fashion Week, because I wanted to do something about the world of fashion and style and clubbing. You may not be surprised to know that is not exactly my specialist area. But then I remembered my mate, Daniel Lismore, who is my guest this week. He's not someone I have a lot in common with, uh, but he is a really nice guy, and he's genuinely a sort of it boy. He's an artist and a fashion muse and a socialite. He's someone who basically, for a job, fraternises with celebs and attends catwalks and wears batshit crazy clothes. Satellite dishes strapped to his face, that kind of thing. He's, he's like a modern-day Lee Bowery. So I think the interview with him gives you some insight into how to crack the London fashion scene and what it's like being a trendsetter. And if that doesn't appeal to you, I've got a game you can play whilst you listen. Uh, he does some amazing name-dropping in this interview. See how many celebs you can count. It's definitely double figures. Uh, elsewhere in this episode, you will learn what orgasmic meditation is. You will learn what you have to do to a chicken wing to charge $30 for it, and you will not learn how long it took Patrick Stewart to put his Borg makeup on, but the question is asked. Let's go. On this week's Modern Man. Lady Gaga comes along. She sees what we're wearing. Telephones, lobsters. She was wearing two to four weeks later. Inspiring celebs, styling the stars. It's all in a day's work for the modern day socialite. Sort of rocket-shaped sachets that have got a long probe on the end. And Alex Fox has a flood of ideas for a listener who wants to get wet. But first, recorded in a bar this week because, hey, we're cool like that. It's Ollie Peart and the Zeitgeist. Hello. Hi, Ollie. How are you? Yeah, I'm all right. Thanks for the drink. 
Oh, right. Literally yeah. sitting in front of no drinks. Sorry. What are the trends you've got for this week? At Sweden. At Sweden. Yeah. This is to do with the Trump thing. So, what happened is there was a bit of an incident globally. Google it. You know what I'm talking about, everyone. <laughs> and uh, everybody wanted to know what the Swedes had to say about said incident. So they went on their on their Twitter account. And when people got to Adsfeden, mm. they found Emma Johansson at the helm of this profile. And she is a librarian based in some part of Sweden that I can't pronounce. And it turns out what the Swedes do is they give their account to a, a different Swedish citizen every week. That's great. It's amazing. It's the democratisation of social media. And they say that the whole point is to support the idea, I love that they call it an idea, of free speech and democracy. Yeah. Lots of things are lovely about Sweden, aren't they? Though? Paternity leave, that kind of thing. Yeah. Uh, dark, yeah it's not necessarily evenings, <laughs> high yeah. suicide rates. If you randomly gave someone the, the UK Gov Twitter account on a day of a week, you couldn't guarantee what they'd be tweeting back to President Trump. But I do like the idea of maybe to promote sort of British values maybe the Queen having an Instagram account where it is her not someone taking pictures of her but her like just being fully in charge I don't think if you gave her an iPhone she would suddenly start doing upskirts <laughs> I think <laughs> she's going to keep the same level of decorum and dignity she always has just Philip asleep <laughs> <laughs> the hashtags would be amazing I'm, I'm not sure the Queen would be on top of hashtags Ollie no but someone she's 90 some years old media person would just be like look no but you've just said not, not a media person her if you, saw the Queen, if you saw an insight into the Queen's actual brain through the form of Instagram, it would just be lots of shots of horses. Hashtag nay. Loads of helicopter shots. But it turns out the Scandinavians are pretty good at this, promoting themselves on old social media. The Finns, they've created their own emojis. Okay. I'll give you an example. Yeah. One of their emojis is the Nokia 3310. Uh, guess what it means? Old. <laughs> no, it means unbreakable. It's a bit like us having an Amstrad as our emoji, isn't it? They've also got another one. They've got uh, socks and sandals, which uh, is fashionista Finns. Apparently that's like the height of fashion in Finland. Also, there's one for a, uh, a thing that the Finns call Karsikanit. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, Karsikanit. It means the feeling of staying at home and getting drunk in your pants with no intention of going out. And the emoji is a man in his pants drinking beer and a woman in pants drinking beer as well. Oh, that's nice that it's uh, gender neutral, though, isn't it? Oh, yeah, they all are. Apart from the socks and sandals. I mean, I don't know how you'd identify socks and sandals as a woman or a man's foot. I've never seen a woman wearing socks and sandals. <laughs> I think every woman knows that that's just <laughs> yes. criminal. It's awful. It's, it's only men, It is criminal, isn't it? It's isn't it? men. Anyway, what else have you got for us this week? SSGB. There's some BBC drama about what would happen if the Nazis invaded Britain. Yeah, I saw it on Sunday. Any good? Very good. Basically, there seems to be a bit of a trend towards alternate fact-type Nazi-winning... Okay. The war I thought programming. You were going back to our previous story, going to talk about a trend towards fascism, <laughs> <laughs> which there certainly does seem to be. No, no, it's just that there's there's another show called Man in the High Castle, which is the same principle. It's actually based on another book with a similar idea. The okay. Nazis won the war, yeah. essentially. Uh-huh. But SSGB is based in Britain, and what's happened is that the Nazis have occupied parts of Britain. So they still haven't got as far north as Birmingham. They've only occupied like London and the southeast. So this, this, this is set in nineteen forty something. Nineteen forty-one. Okay, fine. Yeah. I was going to say, if by now they haven't got to Birmingham, then uh, <laughs> that's a slow army. But there is one one pitfall as well, which is, seems to be a common bloody trend in BBC dramas. 
You can't hear what they're saying, Ollie. Oh, no, you're not going to be one of these people that complains about the sound oh on BBC God. costume dramas. No, you are no better than an old woman who writes into the Sunday Times Culture magazine. Is... What's wrong with you? You can always hear what people are saying. No. It's just a move towards a mumbly style of acting that's more naturalistic. The Turn lead... it up. No, no. The lead actor, Sam Riley, right, he does all this, like, weird sort of... <laughs> because that's what how people talk. Wait, wait. He goes, he goes... Oh, that's... that's oh, yeah. <laughs> what did I just say? What did I say? You said, oh, that's. <laughs> and what annoys me, because I know why that's happened, is because the editor has got his headphones on and he's editing away and he doesn't realise that we're all going to be sat at home watching it on a wanky Technica TV with shitty speakers that we got from Tesco for 100 quid and we can't bloody hear it. Right. I want my TV up full wax on 99, doesn't even go up to bloody 100. Uh, what's your third trend of the week? Chick bling. Chick bling. Yeah, I made that up, but I thought it sounded quite good. Okay. Uh, there's a chicken wing for sale in a restaurant in Hong Kong that costs $30 for a single wing. Okay, that's interesting. It is interesting. I'll tell you it? why I find that interesting. Because you like chicken wings. I do like chicken wings. I specifically like buffalo style chicken wings. Mm. And I've recently tried to start making them myself at home. Americans listening to this will think, well, that's easy. You just go and buy a bottle of Franks. Not so easy in Britain, Americans. Not so easy in Britain. But you can go and buy Franks. It just takes a little bit of time and attention. Then when you try and buy the chicken wings to, you know, based in the fluid, yep. very difficult to buy a quality chicken wing. Trying to find a free-range organic chicken wing is impossible because people who buy chicken wings in this country, they buy the value ones. What happens to the wings that are on organic free-range chickens? Where do they go? You can buy the chicken breast. You can't buy the... Anyway, I'm ranting. You are ranting. Point, you're very angry about this. The point is... I always end up spending about 10p a chicken wing for the ones I make at home myself when I would rather be spending a pound. I just can't buy the pound chicken wings. So if the $30 chicken wing for sale in Hong Kong is a quality chicken wing, then I support that. Well, they claim it's one of the best, Ollie, which is why it's 30 blooming yeah, well, dollars, which is ridiculous. But it is slightly different from your typical chicken wing. It is stuffed with rice, smoked eel and foie gras. Stuffing a wing with foie gras. Yeah, and then they stick. Uh, they occasionally stick matzotate mushrooms, and then it costs forty-five dollars, which is three hundred and forty-nine Hong Kong dollars. But it's not actually that absurd in the sense that the food trend, and we've discussed this quite a lot, of the last sort of ten years. Well, ever since the banking crash, really, has been comfort food coming around again in mm. the form of like fast food, but pimped, hasn't it? It's not just a super nice chicken wing. It's like it's fine dining. This is fine dining. Mm. That's why it's got bloody foie gras in it. But it gave me an idea. Is it for a game? It's for a game. Are you doing a pun on wing roulette? The game is called yeah. Supermarket Shit. Yeah, go I'm on. basically going to tell you the name of some really expensive foods. Uh-huh. And you've got to guess in dollars the price. Right, so it's things that are surprisingly expensive. Okay, you ready? <laughs> yeah. The Kotoka Strawberry Gift Box. Okay, so it's what is that even? Uh, well, it's a Japanese strawberry, and you only get one strawberry. <laughs> comes in a, a wooden box on a yeah. bed of hay. Okay. And you buy it. Uh, this is sold in Hong Kong, yeah. and it's from Japan. So a, a singular strawberry in any kind of box shouldn't cost more than four pounds, even in Marks and Spencer. So let's say eight. Uh, eight dollars, yeah. Eight dollars, twenty-two dollars. Okay. I think you've look astonished. No, <laughs> look astonished, Ollie. You've already set up the fact that these are going to be absurdly expensive. So yes, that is absurdly expensive. What else you got? The Densuk. Don't know if that's how you say it. Watermelon. Five thousand pounds. Oh, 
Ooh. <laughs> like loads. <laughs> well, I was okay. thinking obnoxious. Typically, yeah. around $121. So no. But for the a watermelon? Most ex- yeah, for a watermelon. For a watermelon? No, not just for any watermelon. No, I should for imagine not. It must be laced with cocaine. Stripless watermelon. Right. It must taste like God's semen. Yeah. It's $121, and it is the most the most expensive one ever sold. Yeah. Was six and a half thousand dollars? You said five thousand dollars. Six and a half thousand yeah. dollars for a watermelon. So, but I guess you're collecting. You probably aren't. I guess the moment you cut the watermelon open, it's valueless, isn't it? You're collecting it because it doesn't have the stripe on it and it's rare. Well, yeah, presumably. So I sort of get it. Okay, next one. Okay. Strawberries or Nord? Go on. It's it's a bowl of strawberries. Yeah. I got a whole bowl. And it comes with a garnish, and the garnish is a 4.7 carat pink diamond ring. I'm sorry, but that's not a bowl of strawberries. That's well, a ring that's been presented in some strawberries. It is, well, it is a bowl it's of not fair to say, oh, that's an outrageous price for a bowl of strawberries. <laughs> I mean, if you presented a ring in a box, you'd say that was an outrageous price for the box, but you're paying for the box and the ring. Well, when I tell you the price, it might be an outrageous price for a ring as well. Uh, how many carrots? It's not carrots, it's strawberries. Uh uh, okay. 4.7. Pink. Know, pink diamond. Um, um, $200,000. This is where I'm about to blow your mind. Right. I'm waiting for your reaction. Are you ready? Yeah, totally. $1.4 million. Wow. That is an expensive strawberry. I don't even know why I bother with these games. <laughs> I mean... If you could carve this section into a coconut, Ollie, how much would you pay for it? Fuck all. Uh, if you've got an idea for next week's episode of The Zeitgeist, what should you do with it? Send them to... At the modern man. Which isn't manned by a different person every week. No, but maybe we should try that. It's usually that. one of us. Maybe we should try that. Or you could send it to Ollie in a bowl of strawberries and then calculate the value of the idea based on the strawberries. I'm down for free strawberries. Now, what are you wearing right now? If you're commuting, perhaps a suit, perhaps a smart cash blazer and jeans kind of deal... If, like me, you are a stay-at-home me-lancer, then perhaps you're in a hoodie and some comfortable slacks. My guest today, the artist Daniel Lismore, doesn't own any of that. He threw away his jeans, he threw away his T-shirts years ago. When he goes out for an evening, which he does most evenings professionally, he might wear a Maasai tribal mask, a gold-studded hijab or Arthurian battle garb. He might wear an orange plastic hat that's three foot wide, or he might play it down, like he did when we met at the beginning of London Fashion Week, and he turned up for this interview wearing what for him was real loungewear, a caftan, a velvet scarf, and a top hat. It's led to Vogue calling him England's most eccentric dresser. But how did this softly spoken man in his early 30s turn that into his job? What is a typical day like in the life of a socialite, party guy and fashion muse? So I get up, you know, 11 to 1, usually I'd get up. I check social media, the first thing I do, I think most of us do that. And I don't eat for at least two hours, so I forget to eat, usually. So we're at like 4pm by now. Yeah. And then I go, oh god, I need to get out of the house and go and eat something. And then uh, I'm like, I'm trying to be healthy at the minute, so... Try and find healthy food. It's impossible to find healthy food in all these chains. And then, what time, the time did you start getting ready? Uh, about well, usually it takes me twenty-five minutes, half an hour. No way. Yeah. Then, but you're putting on like seriously, like a rubber mask and you know shorts over your trousers <laughs> and like ten gold watches, and you can do all that in twenty-five. Yeah, minutes. it's all there. So I just walk around the room and go, oh, what can I wear today? And usually I go by color, texture, shape. 
and I might take something off, I might put 10 things on. Sometimes it's taken up to two hours. It depends what where I'm going. I did a birthday party once, and I was so weighed down, and my, my wig was as tall as my torso. So it's kind of a... And then I had to get in a car, and then you have to get in a car sideways. So, and then you have to make sure your fabric's not caught in the in the car door, and it's not going to go under the car wheel, which it did once. And so, how did you afford to pay the rent then? I didn't really. It was it was a struggle, as well as living this amazing life. I was struggling. So there were. So times you're partying when, all night with Lady Gaga and Dolce and Gabbana. Yeah. And then you can't necessarily afford to buy lunch when you wake up. Yeah, it, it, it was like that for a long time. I was going out and being paid to go out, and being paid to be there and being paid to bring other people. And then, depending on their spend, I was being paid for that. Talk us through some of your outfits. Um, I've worn all sorts, like prosthetic legs, like on my head, and turned them into, like, huge wigs, or... I wore a kitchen sink. (laughs) (laughs) It was chained to me, and it really hurt, and I had to um, hold it in one arm all night. Where did you get it from? I don't know, someone squat in Dalston, I think. It was just there, and I thought, I've worn everything but the kitchen sink. I may as well wear that, too. (laughs) (laughs) So what people are wearing on the high street today, we were wearing in clubs like four or five years before all that. So what we do in Clubland, for example, Lady Gaga comes along. She sees what we're wearing. So like telephones, lobsters. She was wearing two to four weeks later. So we were all furious with Lady Gaga. Why? She should have said, I got my inspiration from these guys. She should have. She didn't. But then, you know, I've worked with um, everyone from Kesha to Azealia Banks to Nicki Minaj, um, Mariah Carey. I've worked with all these people. And they all kind of, they get their inspiration from somewhere because they don't just invent it. Tell me what your life was like growing up. I grew up in a small village in the middle of nowhere called Philongley. Growing up, my parents are antiques dealers and we lived in this big kind of half Tudor, half Victorian house and we went to a normal school and growing up and you know that kind of I didn't realize at the time you know about the house that I lived in I thought it was normal so going to school I kind of got bullied for that and then growing up generally I got bullied for everything because I was always a bit of an outcast like I didn't always think about things like everyone else and who did you look up to then? When I was being bullied, I didn't really go out of the house too much, and I collected uh, Star Trek figures and like ships, and I used to have, have them on my ceiling, and it was like a galaxy above me every time I went to bed. And so I loved Star Trek because it was um, scientific, and there were role models like Patrick Stewart, John Luke Picard, and and he was my idol. You know, he was like, he was my ultimate idol. So why? What was it about him? Why? That you liked? I don't know. He was just this powerful, kind of logical, good man, like a, with human rights. And I think that's what really started me on human rights. Um, and neon t-shirts. And yeah, <laughs> I think I had used to get silly putty, and I used to try and transform my face, like to look <laughs> like a Klingon or something. And then uh, my mum said, uh, "There's a Star Trek convention, and Patrick Stewart and Brent Spiner are going to be there." And I'm like, "Oh." my god mum I need to go can I go for my birthday and she said yeah and I think it was the first time I ever came to London my mum had faxed him she'd faxed the hotel with this story about me I'm not really sure what she said near the end he was on the stage and he said uh, is there a Daniel out there is it he's here for his birthday you know Daniel Lismore and I'm just like I nearly died like, <laughs> you know, I was really shy and I grabbed onto my sister and my brother was like come on and she was like and I'm like I can't talk to him literally I can't talk to him and then the moment went and I just sat there like a daydreaming she was like come on you've got to talk to him and the mic started going around so about 10 minutes later I had the guts to get the mic and I 
I said, like, Patrick, this is Daniel. <laughs> you know, how long did it take you to put your Borg makeup on? And and then he answered, and he's like, ah, your mum. And he started talking about me, and I'm just like, this is really crazy. So he came off the stage, me and my brother ran around. There was all these big security men, like, and he saw me, and he went, ah. And he kind of parted them, and came over, and he said, he said, you can be anything you want to be. You can be anything and, you want to be. Yeah, you can be anything you want to be. It was Jean-Luc yeah. Picard, effectively. It was Jean-Luc Picard. Telling you to be what you want to be. Yeah, that's when I started to um, dress up the way I wanted to. We had a dressing up box and I used to I'd put on a ballet dress or dress as a king or, a, you know, I'd cover myself in um, shoe polish, you know. And my mum came home one day and she found me uh, just head to toe in black shoe polish running around the kitchen. Uh, I think I was naked and um, I think that's where it all started. <laughs> so what happened? So I went to study photography and I tried to enter a fashion course it was this college called the Butts College in Coventry. They said, sorry, you're not good enough. And then I didn't really have the marks to get into the photography thing. But the teacher, her name was Uli, she was um, she was kind of a crazy, brilliant German lesbian. And she said yes. She saw that I'd only concentrated on my art things. She said, you'd make a great stylist one day. And then later she told me not to bother taking photos, just to style things. Because you use a lot of uh, epithets to describe what it is that you do on your Twitter and Instagram profiles. Yeah. Uh, Artist, uh, human rights warrior, I think it says. Yeah, yeah. But but essentially, if you were to nail down everything that you do, I'd say stylist is a pretty fair... Yeah. Catch-all term, isn't it? Hillary Alexander was like, say you're a stylist, say you're a stylist. That's what you do best, you know, you curate, I guess. Uh, maybe I should start saying curator. But this is the thing, when when you go to a careers advisor at a young age, they go, what do you want to do? You don't know anything. Like, like how you don't know what exists out there, you know. You know what's in your, your own surroundings and you've seen things on TV. But how are you meant to choose when you're a kid you know your whole life ahead of you it's, it's so ridiculous and you moved to London didn't you as a model yeah so I was at the NEC and for a few years in a row I was scouted to be a model and I thought they were trying to rip me off I was very skinny um I had an eating disorder which um you know I'm, I'm kind of happy to talk about it because it's a really important thing and people don't talk about it um so I had an eating disorder and I was very skinny and was the eating disorder because <clears throat> you wanted to look skinny it wasn't because I wanted to be a model it was because I wanted to be skinnier and I'm not sure why I wanted to be skinnier, but I'm prone to putting on weight. So it was the only way to keep the weight off. You know? And what was the form of your eating disorder? Uh, bulimia. I hid it for years. No one knew until I was about 20, 20 like three, that I actually had it. it. It was amazing to be able to get over it. I never thought I could. And listening to, you know, Sharon Osbourne, oh, you'll always have it. It doesn't occur to me now. And so you were essentially eating and then making yourself sick? Yes the fashion industry is not the great place to be well, it's probably the thing. worst place to be for me as a person you know having an eating disorder and then going to be a model because I, I used to go to castings in like ripped jeans with my nipples out or like you know just held together by safety pins and and that was at this point I thought you know if I'm going to a casting they may as well see my body I don't have to take my top off this is where this whole kind of dandy thing started I, I thought I don't want to look like um, someone going to an office I don't want to look casual I don't want to look like you know the cliche gay boys or whatever I don't want to look like like these models that are just big woolly jumpers and they, they're not showing their assets so I thought what about Oscar Wilde and my mum was like well get some clothes and look like him you know and that's actually where I met Stephen Fry who um, he said he came up to me and he was like 
you're a genius. And I was like, I said, I didn't dress myself. My mum dressed me like, she said, your mother's a genius. I was going out, partying. Um, one minute I, was, I could have been with Anna Nicole Smith, the next minute Dolce & Gabbana, the next minute. But hold you know, on, was, how did you get to that? How did we go so, from shy lad from Coventry does a bit of modelling <laughs> and turns up looking like Oscar Wilde to hanging out with Dolce & Gabbana? Um, I guess through the fashion industry. When you move to London, it's kind of the cultural hub of the world. So everyone's here. And, and if you look a particular way, like you go to nightclubs now. I worked in nightclubs for a while, like hosting or just being there or just actually going to millions of nightclubs, like hundreds of nightclubs. Nightclubs tend to let models in. And then who's in the nightclubs? The rich, the famous, the fabulous, the the interesting... And I met the previous nightlife leaders, like Steve Strange and Boy George and like Pete Burns and all the people that were before me in the 80s. Uh, so meeting them and they opened doors and I opened doors myself and I met all these really interesting people. My model agency had sent me to a, a Y3 party, Yoshi Yamamoto for Adidas. I walked in and at the time Callum Best was like a really, you know, huge kind of celebrity in the papers for doing naughty things I don't know so it was Callum Best Sister Bliss from Faithless and Kirsten Dunst and I was looking around going oh my god all these people are here you know and all these fashion people here and then I met these designers who then introduced me to Pamela Anderson was there and Axel was there from Guns N' Roses and it it was kind of mad just to... And then I, could, I was like, I can actually speak to these people. And there was a point, wasn't there, in the noughties that you sort of became a socialite, really? Yeah, it was a, it was a weird thing. There's been a lot in the papers, obviously, in the last week after the death of Tara Palmer Tompkinson about yeah. the role of the socialite. Yeah, yeah. I knew Tara. Out of all the people that I've met, I, I really loved her. I thought she was, she was such an amazing person. And she always made me feel good about myself but the, cr- the criticism of people like yeah, her yeah the criticism about them is they don't yeah. do anything they do they make things more interesting because then you get a load of journalists who are boring sometimes not everyone but journalists don't do anything apart from make money from people like tara so that whole argument is like i'm a journalist i'm gonna make you a star and then i'm gonna kill you and that's how it goes with a lot of people Nightlife for most people, it's going to be 20, 30 quid on cabs. You've got your outfit for the night. You've got to pay 20 quid to get in. You're going to spend £100 on drinks. How did you go from being a person who does spend £200 to go out for an evening and you weren't earning enough to pay for it to being the guy that wasn't only invited in for free but actually was being paid to be there? Yeah, it was was a mad thing. Um, Some clubs have entertainers. London clubs and some, like, gay venues and whatever, they have, like, drag queens, they have you know, cabaret acts, they have, like, strippers, they have all sorts. They want beautiful people in their clubs to make them look good. So then they plow them with champagne and whatever for free. You then get the bankers. So if you've got loads of female models and you've got a banker in there, the banker is going to spend more money. We did a club called Circus, uh, and it was with Jodie Harsh. This famous, She's a famous drag queen in the UK. And it was mainly her night, but it was my job to go and get the fashion people, celebrities, and the club kids, like the, how we would say, freaks and the, the oddities. So I'd go around London looking for the weirdest people that I could find to bring to this club. You know, I'd met people at the bus stop and I'd met people in Soho and Shoreditch. You know, there were trans women walking around with gas masks because their boobs out. And there were kind of all sorts of, it's just like mad moments. We had Paris Hilton and Paris Hilton DJing at one point. So it was my job to look after certain people in clubs sometimes, you know, just to make sure they were happy. And I don't know. I don't. What do you do when you look after a celebrity in a well, club? I don't know. You just 
You do know. You just talk to them. I don't know. You just talk <laughs> and have fun. And you... So Amy was like... Uh, if I you don't... say you're a club host and you're hosting Amy Winehouse, most yeah. people listening to this will think, therefore, you supplied her with drugs. That's what actually no, got No, no, I've to. never done drugs in my life. People know not to offer me drugs and... Do you drink? I stopped um, a while ago. I have a glass of champagne once in a while. My outfits aren't that easy to wear sometimes. So I might have whiplash. If I if I wear chainmail for one night, I'll get whiplash. But if, if I know if I wear it for the whole week, my neck will be totally fine because your muscles get used to it. So I had really heavy outfits at the time. So sometimes I got really drunk just because I couldn't stand the pain. You know, you get all sorts of reactions. The minute I walk into a room with a with one of these outfits on, the whole dynamic of the room changes, usually. I mean, I've had people literally just part away from me to walk forward, or people stop talking, or they go, what the hell is that? Or this is, oh my God, like, it's the Queen, you know, or come to Versailles, I'm your key, or, you know, I'd like to fly you here, or um, or I've been stabbed, you know, like... I've been spat on and been beaten up. And I've got to that point now where reactions, whether they're good or bad, they're interesting and they make my life interesting. When people are spitting on you, yeah. or in the case where you got stabbed, yeah. I'm presuming that's not in the nightclub, that's on your way home. Yes. So what's going on there, do you think? People are reacting to someone who looks so different. Yeah. I mean, I'd say do anything you want to do as long as you don't hurt anybody. But, um, you know, when people do go that far... It disrupts something in them. And usually bigotry and hatred is caused by either lack of knowledge or self-hatred, you know, or something's happened to someone in their life where they've gone, oh, my God, I'm going to attack that every time I see it. So I can also imagine that you've had some very positive reactions when you've walked onto a tube carriage and everyone's had a few drinks. Yeah, yeah. The weirdest thing that ever happened to me, I walked into this huge restaurant. It was a huge restaurant in Paris, like really big. And someone started to clap and then everyone else started to clap. And then the whole place was clapping. And I'm like, this is crazy. With the advent of social networks... It's no longer about waiting for a photographer to take your picture in an official shoot, no. or even about you generating your own content. It's actually about getting ordinary people, for want of a better phrase, to take your picture. But that's been going on, you know, celebrities always, have, you know, fan photos and things. Yes, but, but um, you know, Diana Dawes was a celebrity, so people took her picture. If you didn't know who someone was, it wouldn't occur to you to take their picture or get it published. Now, part of your job is making sure people take your picture. It is, yeah. It's part of my job. And social media has been massive for me. And also my my manager, his name's Oliver Luckett. So he kind of told me how to use it. Okay, so how should I use Instagram? What am I doing wrong? Well, never post blurry or awful pictures unless you turn them black and white and make them a bit better. Because everything looks good in black and white. But then you've got to make people respond to it in one way or the other whether it be positive or negative and they either got to go what a beautiful photo or i like the message that goes with it or um this is an interesting situation or that's very surreal but i think but the, so pick your moments carefully in other words. you take hundreds of pictures and then you choose one so when you're taking a picture you know if you meet a celebrity make sure there's three because one you might have your eyes closed <laughs> and you don't want to post that then i took one of debbie harry the other day and i literally i can't post it i'm so annoyed daniel lismore and if you want to see what some of his incredible outfits actually look like do follow him on instagram he's at daniel lismore or best of all buy his new book it is called be yourself Everyone else is already taken. Uh, And it's out now for 40 quid hardcover. And it is a beautiful 
coffee table collection of all of his outrageous and incendiary, hilarious outfits. I strongly recommend you take a look, even if you're only vaguely interested in fashion or photography or style. Uh, Obviously, this audio podcast cannot really do him justice, but I will put some photos and links on our website, modernman.co.uk. This podcast is free to download, but it is not free to produce. If you enjoy what we do, please support our independent production by buying us a beer. The average cost of a pint of beer in Britain is £3.47. Yes, it has gone up by 16p. Blame Brexit. Using the secure form on our website, modernman.co.uk, you can buy us one or two or three beers a month, whatever you can afford, or donate however much you choose via PayPal. You can cancel at any time, and every payment, no matter how small, goes directly towards supporting our podcast. If you can afford to, please sign up to buy us one beer a month. It's only what you pay for a magazine in the post, but this one comes to your ears. That's modernman2ends.co.uk and click beer money. Thanks. Turn down the lights, turn down the bed, turn up the podcast. It's time for Alex Fox and the Foxhole. Hello. Slather yourself in Vaseline and just slide into my nook here, Ollie. Your nook? Yes. I'm making it more cosy this week. <laughs> that is, yeah. It's I, I quite like, yeah, the fox nook. Well, I wouldn't really want to uh, make any suggestions that the foxhole is any more capacious than it ought to be. It's adequately proportioned. Good. Um, <laughs> what have you been up to this week? Hi, Ollie. <laughs> uh, well, this week I've been trying not to crap myself with fear as I prepare to give my first ever TEDx talk on wow. Saturday the 25th in Hackney. Yeah. I'm guessing it's not going to be about wallpaper or physics. I'm doing a talk called In Praise of Deeply Unsexy Sex. I think a lot of people in modern times are compromising their enjoyment and their satisfaction of the sexual encounters they're having because they're trying too hard to be something that the media has told them they ought to be. They're trying too hard to be sexy. Uh, And what I will suggest in this talk is if you can let go of worrying about what you look like, what you sound like, what you smell like, whether you're doing something in the right way, according to mainstream uh, interpretations of sex you will have more fun Uh, let's move on to this week's question of sex brought to you by our friends at mycondom.com they offer condoms at prices smaller than a mosquito's urethra and they'll send them to you in discreet packaging so no one needs to know what you've ordered our question this week comes from dry delilah do you have any advice, Alex, on how I can get over a slight phobia that I've developed when it comes to sex? I'm in a long-term relationship, but my sex drive is so low, it's practically non-existent. It doesn't help that I'm on SSRIs and have suffered with anxiety for a long time. I want to have sex and enjoy sex, but I'm put off by the fear of it being uncomfortable or painful. I'm quite a dry girl uh, and require a lot of foreplay or lube for my vagina to be wet enough to allow a penis to go in. I've had a few painful experiences in the past and now it's a vicious circle. No one wants to call their vagina that, I was just thinking that. (laughs) I'm nervous, so I'm tense, which means sex is then painful, which makes me apprehensive the next time, and that keeps happening. Uh, What are your tips for getting over my fear of the pain? I'd love to have a more active sex life and to enjoy sex again. My boyfriend's very understanding. We talk about this openly. His sex drive is very high. Uh, So if I could get over this, we'd both be chuffed. Righty-ho. 
dry Delilah. As I see it, there are two prongs to this question. The first is that we need to try and identify what's making your vagina drier than is usual for you. And the second is to deal with this issue that because you've experienced pain, as you say, you're now apprehensive about having sex. It's making your muscles clench up and it's actually becoming a self-fulfilling prophecy. So there's the physical and the mental here. There's there's a, a muscular tension that can affect the vagina. Oh, very, if you're anxious. Very much so. Really? Think about it. When you, it's a very normal thing that when you're upset or nervous or anxious that you, you, that you tense up. up. Yeah. From the letter, it does seem that she's still having sex. It's just feeling uncomfortable. So why don't we talk about why that dryness might be occurring that's, that's triggering the pain yeah. in the first place? Dryness in the first place is very common, isn't it? Dryness in any case is really, really common. There's a bit of an unhelpful idea in society at the moment that says if a woman is turned on and if her partner is doing things right and touching her in a way that she likes she she will definitely get wetter than the log flume at Alton Towers that is not true in all cases whilst absolutely plenty of foreplay and being turned on and being in a good mood and, and, and feeling sexy that all definitely helps to trigger the body's natural lubrication systems other things can interfere that mean that you can be having the most wonderful time in the world and you're still drier than a Pampers Lockaway core that's been sprayed with arid deodorant in the middle of the Sahara Desert. It's interesting that she mentions that she's on SSRIs, which are medication for depression, because as well as making it more difficult sometimes to orgasm, they can have the impact of making a woman feel more dry. Loads of medications can actually. Certain forms of hormonal contraception, ironically, can not only kill your libido, but also make you feel more dry. Antihistamines can do that. They're designed to dry out the mucous membranes in your nose so that you stop sniffing when you have an allergy. But unfortunately, they can also dry out mucous membranes elsewhere, including in your down belows. But the solution for all of that, I guess, is getting some lubricant, right? I mean, that's what lubricant's for. Yes, there are two that I would recommend that have been specifically formulated to as well as just make things more slippery and slidey they actually re-moisturize the vagina a lot of women use them in conjunction with hrt i wish andy mcdowell would advertise that (laughs) (laughs) my vagina is moisturized which two are they more moister than one of mary berry's victorious sponges there's one that jurex make called sensilube and it actually comes in you can either get it in a pump action bottle like a normal the normal lubricant if you will or you can also get it in these little sort of rocket shaped sachets that have got a long probe on the end so you can actually get it higher up in the body that can be a problem sometimes women you you tend to put lubricant on the outside of the body whereas the dryness is occurring higher up and deeper within them and that's what's causing the pain so the delivery system of your lube as well as the type of lube can help Uh, and there's another one that we actually do you remember when we went to the shush store in hoxton and i covered you in melt wax and whatnot how could i forget do you remember the spider-man lube probe so called because when you play with it in your hands it sort of makes strands a little bit like spider-man's webs i do remember yeah that again is designed to very closely mimic natural a woman's natural secretion so probe or sensi lube might be good things to go for okay Uh, there's another brand called yes as well which do organic lube and you can actually get that on the nhs so if you're struggling to afford some of these things do nip to your gp and see if they can write you a prescription 
Okay, so that's the physical side of it, but then there is this psychological side. She's worrying about it, that's making it worse. She's already on medication for depression, so what do we do here? Well, the anxiety that's going on in the background that she's being treated for is bound to make life more difficult between the sheets as well. And this is, I mean, I hear this so much. This is really a classic loop of something's gone wrong or feels uncomfortable or is painful. I'm worrying about it, therefore it gets worse every time and it's, it's it can be a really difficult cycle to break. I'm going to suggest something tentatively because there's a practice called orgasmic meditation. Aspects of it I think could really help Delilah here. Uh, the reason I'm tentative is that there are courses offered in orgasmic meditation and I do not endorse those. In my experience the people running them can be quite cultish and I've heard some negative things so I wouldn't say go on one of the the OM or orgasmic meditation courses but just borrow this technique from the practice and see if it helps you. Uh This involves setting 15 minutes you might want to put some music on or something to help you measure that time and just getting your partner to very gently using the tip of their forefinger just stroke your clitoris don't expect to be penetrated don't expect to reach orgasm don't have any expectations whatsoever apart from thinking that you're going to enjoy yourself and it's going to be very gentle no no lube oh using lube of course yeah using lube as well whatever makes it more comfortable very tentative and just very yeah just very gentle i think rewinding things a little bit going back a few steps and just going back to simple gentle unhurried unpressured touch without thinking this is definitely going to lead to sex and oh god now i'm getting i'm getting nervous and i'm clenching up again because i know something's going to go inside me at any minute just focus on relaxing really try and key into your body again and re-identify what feels good and we know that for 70 percent of women they need clitoral stimulation in order to reach climax anyway so it's likely to be more pleasurable for her than penetration alone okay and actually just from the male point of view i think you should probably tell your boyfriend that don't expect sex from this this isn't foreplay necessarily this is just an exercise we should do in and of itself so that he's not thinking for that whole 15 minutes about what's coming next as well yeah absolutely and it might make him feel more accomplished and and give him a little bit more control back in the bedroom because he won't be feeling like oh everything i'm doing is hurting my girlfriend she is concerned that his sex drive is quite high Don't forget that there are other ways of pleasuring your boyfriend that don't involve penetration. You don't have to hurt in order for him to be happy. The good news is here, there's loads that can be done. Yes, and Delilah, do keep in touch and let us know uh, whether any of that helps. You can get in touch, any of you, by clicking on the feedback button on our website, modernmanwith2ends.co.uk. And that's how you can send a question to Alex as well. But wait, there's more. There's always more. If you want a condom... If you want more than one condom. Yeah, if you want hundreds, bucket loads. <laughs> in fact, they do give you freebies if you order a certain amount. Uh, head over to mycondom.com and use the special code FOXHOLE to get 15% off your entire order. And with that, we've nearly reached the end of this week's episode, but there is still time to anoint a new ambassador. It is Sister Shelley, who works as a nurse in A&E. She's emailed to say, Ollie, I love the podcast. I loved the live Facebook video. I've left you a bit of beer money, but I also have some advice for Alex Fox. 
I like to tell my patients who attend with <clears throat> lost objects in orifices that in future they should use something with a handle or a wide base. There's less chance that way of it disappearing into the darkness. This hopefully avoids a trip to A&E, but still allows for enjoyment. Hear, hear, Sister Shelley. Uh, I shall pass that advice on to Alex Fox, and I hereby pronounce you Manbassador for the NHS. If you'd like to become a Manbassador, just leave us a review at itunes.com slash man. Our theme music is by Django Django, thanks to them. And our record of the week is this. It's by Tom Williams. It's called Everyone Needs a Home, and it's out later this year on Caroline Records. I've been Ollie Mann, the producer, Matt Hill, and we'll see you next Tuesday. Hi, my name is Kay Adams, and to be honest, I'm not so good with the ageing process, so I enlisted my old chum, the filter-free Cara McKenzie, to advise. Could you imagine being a porn star? The room would need to be really hot for me to strip <laughs> off. To be honest, she's not much help, but she is rather amusing. And along with some great guests, Joe Brand, Andy Oliver, Anton Dubeck, Ruth Langsford and Craig Revel-Horwood, darling, we are learning how to be 60. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.